You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. How are you doing today, Anthony? Do you know how I know that playoffs are close? How do you know? I was watching uh, Carolina and Nashville last night, and Jake Gardner just got absolutely roasted twice for goals against. And if that's not the sign that playoff time is here, I don't know what is. I don't know why you're spending your free time watching Carolina Nashville. Because <laughs> there's actually fans at those games, and that's exciting for me. Yeah, Colorado versus Vegas is a good time if you're in for some A plus hockey. Love watching that late at night. That was a good game. Yep, this is a Leafs podcast, though. Let's let's switch gears here. Let's get into the Leafs. It's looking pretty likely that they're going to face the Montreal Canadiens in the first round. Uh, I was just checking the odds today on uh, Dom at the Athletic. He has them at 72% to face the Habs in the first round, 28% to face the Jets. So under the impression that Toronto is going to be facing Montreal in the first round, what are some of your first thoughts? Because I know that it's obviously a fun rivalry between the two Canadian teams, but hockey-wise, I think there's a lot more going on here tactically that could be interesting. The first thing that's just going to piss me off is us doing this podcast, and then they don't end up playing the Habs. But Yeah, that it's just Jets central. Right? It, you just... <laughs> we've been we've been toyed with this idea before of Leafs Habs and the fact that it's finally here it's you know it's almost surreal uh, it's close so and Max Domi and Kasper Kapanen aren't even on those teams anymore yeah you ever watch old players I was watching Eric Carlson absolutely dangled Phil Kessel uh, a few nights ago and it was just flashbacks was, what if Carlson had a Sens jersey and Phil had a Leafs jersey this replay would have been viral that's 900-point player Phil Kessel for you. Yeah. So we get into this Leafs-Habs series, and it's really interesting in, in the, a few ways. One, who's healthy, right? We've we've kind of talked about that a few times. It sounds that every pretty much every Hab is going to be back other than Jonathan Duran, and that includes Carey Price. And similarly for the Leafs, Frederick Anderson's going to be back, and it's entirely possible that going into it and who would have guessed this that Frederick Anderson and Carey Price are both backups to start this series I do think Anderson's gonna get in a game it sounds like games three and four are gonna be back-to-backs in that first round which by the way is ridiculous but if that's gonna be a thing I gotta think you go with Anderson in one of those starts whether it's the front half or the back half uh Gallagher's gonna be in this series right that's definitely a thing Yes, by okay. and unless something goes wrong, by all indications, he's back on the ice. Um, honestly, it would just be hard for me to imagine Brendan Gallagher not playing in the series. I, just because he's Montreal's most important player by far at 5-on-5. Five five. He does so much of the, the winning of the puck battles in all three zones that results in that line having the best numbers in the NHL over the last couple of years, including this season. If you want to go expected goals, scoring chances, shots, they're not just top 10, top 5, they're top 1, and they face top competition too. They're not just burying lots of chances, you know, jamming the puck into the pad five times and the XGs rack up and the goals don't actually go in. The goals have been going in this year too. It's why Montreal as a team at 5-on-5 five five is actually the one team in the Canadian division that scares me if I'm the Leafs. I guess the one thing that you can look at is say, other than 5-on-5, five five, they haven't been good. They're terrible at 4-on-4. Four terrible on the PK their goalies uh eh, hasn't been the best year for them in net Jake Allen's weirdly outplaying Carey Price that's a bizarre thing he's gonna be their starter 
So we got a number of questions because we, we put this out to listeners. Uh, so hopefully those of you that asked are listening along. So we want to try to integrate your questions as we go along here and, and kind of get into the this whole Leafs first Habs playoff preview. Um, and one thing that someone asked us was, if their five-on-five five numbers are so good, then why is their record so mediocre? And they did ask about it their record more recently, to which I would say because they've had injuries, particularly the Brendan Gallagher one and the Shea Weber one. But beyond that, you know, they're in 18th right now in the league. Have you seen them play at three-on-three? Three? Yeah, they're awful. It's the worst version of three-on-three three hockey you could imagine. They're basically playing for the clock to expire. Yeah, it's it's terrible they, they just they lack dynamic talent that's that's the hard thing for me to take them seriously I mean they're at the end of the day they're 24 21 and 10 they're they're quite literally 18th at the same time the best predictor of future performance in the playoffs tends to be five on five shot differential and five on five scoring chance differential they're very high in those metrics, so that to me is a positive indicator. It reminds me a bit of, do you remember the LA Kings uh, a few years back when they didn't have the best record, the goals weren't always going in, but yeah. ever since the Jeff Carter trade, they were just steamrolling teams at 5-on-5. Five five. The Habs aren't quite as dominant as those LA Kings teams, but they remind me of them in that they're in the offensive zone way more often than they're in the defensive zone. And if you can do that at 5-on-5, five five, it translates well to the playoffs, especially later in the series when we, we've seen evidence that shows that in Game 6 and Game 7 of a close playoff series, the refs don't call as many penalties. And that's where a 5-on-5 five five dominant team like Montreal, I think, can make a bit of noise. So, so they are 18th. I did check. They're tied with Philly, who's nowhere close to the playoffs right now. It's because they they're last in the league in save percentage by a lot. Yeah, yeah. They were tanked by goaltending this year. Uh, but you could make a real case that the Habs aren't in the playoffs in a normal regular season with normal divisions. You mean like last year? Yeah, right? I mean, if you think about it, if you if you really think about it, they were, what, 24th last year? And so them, you know, with the moves that they made, which were, they essentially upgraded their roster, but they didn't, they didn't do it at, an, at the high-end elite level. They did it more in the middle of the pack. And I understand that Tyler Toffoli is having a monster year, but, you know, nobody's going to call Tyler Toffoli, Mitch Marner, or Austin Matthews anytime. Like, those are actual elite players. But he's a good player, and he was on their third line for most of the, on, In a healthy lineup, when they had the Gallagher line, the Drouin line, and then they had Toffoli on their third line, that was a frightening, that was a frightening team if you have three good lines like that. I think, unfortunately, with the Drouin situation, now they need to move a few players up their lineup to play on that second line, and their third line doesn't look as scary. You like joking with me, you're, whether it's a text or in the Slack group, you're watching Eric Stahl a lot in a Montreal uniform. Awful, and just, awful. Yeah, it's, oh. uh, it's poop emojis, it's jokes that you're sending me. It's, it's not great. You, I would healthy scratch him. If they're healthy, I'm healthy scratching him game one. But you traded, I, what, a third and a fifth for him? Yeah, who cares? The third and a fifth. They're nothing. But I think I think compared to the LA comparison, and I get it to some degree, but okay, so beyond LA making the big trade, they also had a real one C, which the Habs do not. And I like Nick Suzuki. I think he's gonna be a really good player. That, I was gonna say that's Philip Deneau slander. Yeah. And I like Philip Deneau too, as much as one can like a checking center, but Anzi Koptar was elite, elite. I mean, they had that one playoff run where he went head to head against in succession it was something along the lines of and I, i'm not these are the three guys but i might not get the order right 
but it was prime Ryan Getzlaff, prime Joe Thornton, and then prime Jonathan Taves. And they won every series. Like I just Suzuki can't do that. And I like Suzuki. He's a nice player. And I like to know he's a nice player, but neither of those guys are doing that and coming out on the other end of it. Yeah, Dino's elite defensively, but he's nowhere near a Kopitar offensively, and that's where the difference is. And that's with a lot of Habs players. And they don't have the goaltending, and I know people rip on Jonathan Quick. Jonathan Quick was good when they were winning cups. This is the thing with goaltenders, is that if you want to have a large sample and you go across Jonathan Quick's career, he wasn't actually that great relative to his peers. But if you go into specific seasons and specific playoff runs, he had some really high highs. Yeah, he was a monster. I don't think they're getting that out of Jake Allen. They're going to have to turn to Carey Price at some point, right? They're going to have to turn to Carey Price, who every goalie analyst insists is still a top five, top ten goalie, one healthy. And I just, when has he been healthy in the last couple seasons? I could take the argument that Price might black out. If someone wanted to argue that and say, I think Price could go on an absolute heater, I would find it hard to just outright dismiss it. I don't think you can. I thought he was quite good in the in their little playoff run last year i think pittsburgh was completely mailing that playoff series and uh they that was a full covid play in from pittsburgh if i ever saw one pittsburgh washington and st louis mailed in that play in harder than i think i've seen any other group of teams do before it was stunning so I'll give Price some credit. I thought they had a good run, but I, I do think Pittsburgh looked pretty checked out. I remember watching every single one of those games and just thinking, when is Pittsburgh going to take this seriously? And it just it never felt like they did. Play this game with me real quick. If Montreal defeats Toronto in the first round, they will do it how? How will they accomplish that? What are some specific things that need to happen for them to get that result? I think they're just going to grind them down with depth, low-scoring games, their special teams gets hot compared to the Leafs. I mean, if the Leafs aren't scoring on the power play and you're just going to go pure five on five and maybe you squeak a power play goal in or two on the other end, I think you're liking your chances. If if the Leafs aren't scoring on the power play at all, you, you're getting a series. It's hard to just outwin not not scoring on the power play at all. And I'm going through their lineup right here. I'm thinking they have a third line that doesn't look that great in terms of you have a Perry, Stahl, Caulfield. That might be more of a fourth line because Paul Byron, Jake Evans, and Arturi Lekkinen, you were watching them closely the other night. You're a big fan of that line. They were amazing. They were amazing against Edmonton. As much as we can make fun of Montreal for their lack of a true superstar, I think they have much better scoring depth than Toronto. As much as I love Jason Spezza, and you can look at his point production on Toronto's fourth line, he's been excellent. But the line that Toronto looks like they're going to run as their third line in the playoffs is a Riley Nash-centered line. And this leads us into a conversation about having a defensively oriented line in the playoffs. And and the Leafs, I see what they're doing. They have the Matthews-Marner line, the Tavares-Nylander line, and then in the bottom six, they want to have a checking line and they want to have a more sheltered offensive line. I, I definitely understand the logic behind it. But I wanted to use this as an opportunity to pivot and talk about Riley Nash and what he is as a player because... He's fascinating in that if you look at his defensive impacts throughout his career, he's always been one of the stronger defensive players in the league. But if you look at his point production rate over the last few years, he's among the worst NHLers in terms of just raw production offensively, raw impact offensively. He's one of the worst offensive players in the league. So even though it's kind of like what I say about Morgan Riley, how even though he's great offensively, he gives it all back. Even though Riley Nash is elite defensively, 
he gives it all back by not providing any value offensively. Now, that obviously matters. Late in the third period where you're holding a one-goal lead, you want a player like that on the ice to kill off 40 seconds. But at some point, if you have a third-line center who's getting 12 or 13 minutes a night in a crucial game, and he can't help produce a goal, how much is that going to hurt you? I find this conversation fascinating because I've seen some people who are in love with Riley Nash. I've seen some other people who I respect their opinions, and they're of the opinion that, man, this guy just doesn't provide anything offensively. I get that he's good defensively, but what's that worth to you if you can't score a goal on your third line? So I think that this one depends on the matchup, and this also bleeds into a pretty good conversation of a lot of people asked us about how we would configure the lines or what we think of the line. So this kind of plays into that. To me, though, when you play the Habs, the Habs are about depth and they're about four lines. The Habs look their best to me when they're running four lines well. And everybody's ice time is a little lower, but because their ice time is a little lower, they get to go a little extra when they do get on. And that's what makes them dangerous, right? You have rested guys continually coming out wave after wave. As a cascading effect, when you're living in the yeah. offensive zone, the other team has to panic, dump it out, and then you get fresh legs coming over the boards. It's a cycle. It beats you down into oblivion. Whereas the Leafs don't do that, right? The Leafs are top-heavy. So to me, if you're going to have a third line that doesn't score against a team that's going to run four lines pretty hard, and the Habs will be pretty comfortable with... They're obviously going to want the Deno line matching up against the Matthews line. But beyond that, I think they would be fairly comfortable with any of their three lines going against any of the other three Leafs lines. But from the Leafs end, there's a lot of pressure on your top two lines to score against a team that's pretty good at five on five at suppressing shots and scoring chances. And then you're taking away a line that will, you know, between Riley Nash and Ilya Mikheyev, I don't know who could score less if that's even possible. It's a two-on-one with Ilya Mikheyev and Riley Nash. What happens next? The puck is dumped into the corner is the answer. I, I would just tell one whoever has the puck to shoot it just so you could record the shot on net. Let, let's just get a shot on net. Just a low shot. Let's hope for the rebound. Just crash the crease. Yeah. If uh, if the D-man actually dives for a two-on-one against it, try to rip him off. Try to rip it off his ankle and see if it deflects in the net. Like that kind of thing. <laughs> Because otherwise, just I don't know how it's going to happen. So I don't know. When I look at playing the Habs, my kind of thought going into that series was I would I would be more likely to play Zach Hyman on the third line because he does make them a scoring threat. We saw that he could carry the line and actually drive them. He transports the puck way better than he ever yeah. has in his career. The zone exits, zone entries, passes after crossing the blue line offensively. He's evolved so much as an offensive player to the point where we can say these things about him. Yeah, and you could put... He's, other than, um, you know, the big four, he's the only other guy that you could put with those kind of checkers and actually make them a complete line that could also score. You can't say that for any of the other guys, including Kerfoot. So Nick Foligno, so Nick Foligno's not someone for you that you can place on the third line and he makes that all of a sudden a legitimate presence of a line. Yeah, I think Foligno is a very, very good complementary player. And I don't say that as a knock at all. I, th- I think there's something to be said for, you know, those sort of glue guys that, you know, people are loath to kind of acknowledge. But you could kind of play him in any role in any situation and he figures out a way to contribute. I think that's an important piece to have in your lineup i don't think you look at a line and say nick felino i want you to be the best player on this line at this stage in his career but you could look at a line and say zach hyman i want you to be the best player on this line 
So when I look, I I would be, like I said, more likely to play Hyman on the third line and have a three-line attack with your fourth wild their wild card line, to be honest. The fourth line is just a wild card. Well, Thornton, Spezza, Simmons, just all the uh the old school guys. It's a pure wild card line. Um at, you know, in theory, I could see how it might help. In theory, I could see how it would be a disaster. But I just, I really couldn't count on them for anything. But against a team like Edmonton or even Winnipeg, who are top-heavy, I would then be more likely to have that third-line check, pure checking line because Winnipeg has no defense to speak of whatsoever. And Edmonton has Tyson Berry. So... <laughs> Let me just let you love bringing that up. Tyson Berry is just comedy of... He's, it's a free joke. It's a free laugh. Just bring up his name. I can't. I, I'll never forgive that guy for that season and making us watch him. I just, I can't. So I could get it if if you want to sit there and say the Leafs could have these two scoring lines and a pure checking third line against these other teams that just bleed defensively and are going to give you chances because the Leafs will cash in on those. That I'm not concerned about. But the one team that kind of pauses me for that approach is the Habs because the Habs are quite, they're going to be disciplined. They're just going to say, let's grind these guys down. If they get to the third period and it's a tie game, the Habs are feeling good. Yeah, because I I think their approach is going to be, we just want to get the puck in the offensive zone and hope that some good things can happen. Keep the game close and let's see how it goes. That's exactly how I would coach it if I was them. Let's roll the lines. Let's you know, wear down their top guys. You know their fourth line's only going to play 9-10 minutes. Let's just absolutely try to get heavy legs and a tight game. And then you get to overtime, let's say, and you have a third line that can't score at all. And then you have a bunch of old guys that have been sitting on the bench in the on, you know, line four. And this sounds like worst case scenario. I, you know, this is, if Matthews and, and the Tavares line are not scoring having a third line that can't score is a problem, especially if the power play is not clicking. And this is where Zach Hyman's usage, I think comes into account because if Zach Hyman's in your top six, your third line's not going to score. That's so that's the thing, but you could also say, you know what? Are they just, you know, and we haven't really seen this too much against the Habs necessarily. Um, but if you're just going to go, okay, the top line's going to run an absolute train on them. And we just need some defensive shifts from our third line. In that scenario, yes. I don't think that's a great approach, though, because you're going up against the best defensive line of the last three years. This is Bergeron, Marchand, Pasternak without the elite goal scoring. Yeah, so that that will be the thing for Keefe to kind of figure out and adjust for. So we've had, we received some questions on this too. And I'll, before I get to this, I'll flip back to you in case you have anything to add on this sort of approach. So... Let's quickly go through the top 12 forwards because we can easily go Matthews Marner, Tavares Nylander, Hyman, Felino. Those ones goes, go without saying. Now we get into the, the way that Keefe is going to be breaking down his bottom six in terms of the defensive line and the offensive line. Let's start with the offensive line. It's the fourth line, but I think it's easier to put together. Thornton and Spetzer are going to be there, right? That goes without saying. This is the one to me. Wayne Simmons is the player who I always come back to, and I wonder, is he actually in your top 12? We'll come back to him in a sec. Yeah, what's the fit? So we'll come back to Wayne Simmons in a sec. Your third line, I got to think Mikheyev's there because he's so valuable on the penalty kill that if you have him there as a PK specialist and a defensive checker on your third line, I can understand it. It sounds like Riley Nash is the defensive center they want in the bottom six instead of a Pierre Engvall. 
I can understand it, even though I, my fellow nerds would like to argue that Pierre Engvall is a more effective offensive player and is also a very good shot suppressor, but I, I bet you NHL head coaches would argue that Keith is too soft going into puck battles and defending in the front of the net in the playoffs, whereas Riley Nash is someone you'd trust more in those instances. Uh, to me, Kerfoot shouldn't be safe in the top 12. I think he's been safe all season. He hasn't sat. And if you look at his numbers when he plays without Tavares Nylander, he's been brutal at 5-on-5. Five five. He looks great as the left winger on that second line, but literally everywhere else in the lineup, he's been underwater at 5-on-5. Five and, five. and I don't think you want players who are underwater at 5-on-5 five five in your lineup, which is also why I'm a bit worried about Wayne Simmons. The interesting question that you pose there that I've never really actually just sat there and thought of and, and actually just, you know, pen and paper and written down is, okay, who actually are their best 12 forwards? So the, the six guys, nobody will argue whatsoever. The big four, Felino, Hyman. No, you, you might not even like Felino that much, but nobody in their right mind is going to argue that he's not in the top 12. Spezza's having a monster year. Spezza's there. So now we're at seven. It's hard to take him out of the lineup. I've seen some people suggest he might come in and out of the lineup. I don't see it. I think he's been too valuable as an offensive player. And he, and on their power play, he facilitates everything on PP2. No, he's been too good offensively. And this is a this is coming from me. I didn't even like the Jason Spezza signing way back when it originally happened. You were down to bench him. You, you're the Mike Babcock of this podcast. Yeah, abs- <laughs> a- absolutely. Now, interestingly, one thing that I did think of is would... And, and this seems weird, and some people might say, like, who cares? And I totally get it if you do. Um, but would sitting Jumbo have that same, to a degree, Spezza effect? Would the players be upset? If it happened on game one of the regular season, and it was in front of a home crowd, and he bought 50 tickets for his friends and family. But if he just played the entire regular season for the Leafs, which he's about to when he's been healthy, and then you say, yeah, take a seat game one of the playoffs... Is that going to have a, just a weird effect? It, I think it would. And this is this, the Wayne Simmons effect, too, where if you sit him, what's the impact on the rest of the team? And this is where, with a Dan Girardi type or Roman Polak type in years past, or Matt Martin's another one who comes to mind, guys whose impact on the team's chances of winning aren't tied directly to their on-ice performance. There are other factors that you're taking into account, right? Wayne Simmons, the energy that he provides to the team. Joe Thornton, leadership. Uh, Jason Spezza, you can say similar stuff. But this is where it's a balancing act because you do want to ice your 12 best players. But at the same time, if, let's say, player number 12 and player number 13, it's close, but then the off-ice aspects are significantly in one player's favor, like a Thornton or a Simmons then I think a coach would lean towards Thornton or Simmons. What I wonder is, is Galchenyuk drastically better than Wayne Simmons and, let's say, Alex Kerfoot at 5-on-5 five five, to the point where he should be in the lineup and those guys should be much closer to the outside and looking in than they currently appear to be? Because right now it seems like Galchenyuk's going to be sitting unless he gets in for a game or two. Whereas I'm not sure if that should be the case. Even though I get why you don't trust him in the top six, I, I grade these games every night, and I find very specific instances where he's blown his assignment. And I try to gift them, and I try to show people. He's bad, and he will always be bad defensively. And this is why coaches don't trust him. And, and it makes sense. Coaches aren't always dumb. As much as the nerd, the inner nerd in me wants to tell coaches that they're wrong at certain times, say, oh, no, it's a bias, you know, size bias, height bias. This player has good results, and you're overlooking it. But with... With Galchenyuk, you can see the defensive flaws that result in him allowing more chances against than any other forward who plays in Toronto's top six. The, the, the opposite end of that spectrum is that he generates more chances than any other player in Toronto's top six. So there is a bit of a yin and a yang to it. 
I, I wonder if Galchenyuk should be given more of a shot than he's currently being given. Let's say on the fourth line. It's a, it's a given that Wayne Simmons is going to be in, but why can't you have a Galchenyuk, Thornton, Spezza fourth line? There's a lot to unpack there, which I think is quite interesting. One, I would say that Kerfoot is better. And I, I don't like Kerfoot, as you know. But Kerfoot can play center, uh, which I value. Can he play it well? No, but he can play it a little bit. He can definitely take some serviceable shifts there, which Galchenyuk can't do. If he was your fourth line center, you'd be happy, right? Yeah, not a three and a half mil, but for the rest of this playoff run before they get rid of him, then yeah, sure. Yeah, Thornton, Kerfoot, Spezza is a line that you could look at and say, yeah, I like this. Uh, yeah, honestly, I thought that was going to be the thing for a bit. And then with the way uh, injuries shook out, then Adam Brooks got in there and, and he looked pretty good. Uh, and then, you know, they just kind of rolled with it. But I do think Kerfoot provides some value just as the versatility of um, left wing, center. He's decent on the penalty kill. I'm not going to say he's good, but he's decent. I think him and Mikheyev are more than decent. I think those two play so well together on the PK until they have a two-on-one. Yeah, I think Mikheyev <laughs> is legitimately, like, he's a really good checker. So when we talk about 12 best forwards, Mikheyev is there for me without blinking. I would argue that to my death. I, I know there's problems with him because he can't score and whatever, and it drives me nuts too, and I find it funny sometimes as well. I was looking at the difference between XG and G, like the difference between guys who generate a bunch of chances but don't actually score, and Mikheyev's at the bottom of that list for Toronto this year, and that's not shocking at all. No, not at all, but the fact that he's able to to still create those chances, his speed is an absolute weapon, he's legitimately effective on the penalty kill, he's legitimately effective on the forecheck, he does so many good things out there. I love the way he, in a 1-3 neutral zone trap where you have one guy kind of hovering around the defenseman, daring them to drop past it. He's so good at reading that play. He's so good at bothering the defenseman and kind of cheating towards the pass and daring them to take the entry. And then sometimes he'll even strip the puck off of them. I love watching Mikheyev just kind of probe around puck carriers and then they don't realize he's in their airspace and he pokes at them with his 15-foot long stick, which reminds me... John Tavares said he was using Pierre Engvall's stick earlier in the season. Yeah, no wonder he couldn't score. What the hell? What's wrong with you? I know. Don't, I, I read about, when I read that, I was like, "What? Him? Maybe don't use Pierre Engvall's stick. Maybe use literally anyone else's stick was, other than Pierre Engvall." But that's that's just a side thing. Did Austin Matthews say no, and Engvall was the backup? <laughs> Went up to Engvall and said, "I'm taking a few because Matthews told me no." Like, I guess if you want to break up more passes, yeah, use Engvall's stick. But if you want to actually produce offense, wouldn't you go to a different player? That's, again, just such a silly thing. I won't even bother acknowledging it. But getting back to their top 12 forwards. We had so many people ask us this. So I want, I want you to say this, and maybe you were about to. But we had so many people ask us about top six, stacked, bottom six, depth, all this. What, all what we're going through right now, all the different theories and whatnot at forward. Gun to your head. Playoffs start tomorrow. What are your four lines? I think you do have Hyman Matthews Marner as your death lineup as that kind of three best players that you can throw out there against anyone and feel pretty good about. And I understand why teams do it. Uh, Colorado has their line where it's Landeskog, McKinnon, Rantanen. Boston has their top line. Tampa went healthy, had that top line with Point and Kucherov. So I understand wanting to do that. I think that's where I'm at right now. Felino, I've wanted to see alongside Tavares for a while. We haven't got to see it yet, but I think those two, their ability to win battles in tight spaces in the offensive zone off the cycle, that's that to me seems like a playoff line 
where when things are clogged up and against a team like Montreal where there isn't much space available and you have to dump the puck in a bit more, I think a Felino-Tavares line could work really well. So that's my second line, Tavares, Nylander, Felino. The third line, I like McKayev and uh, and Riley Nash. I was thinking about that, but I, I don't want Kerfoot there. So that leaves me, who do I put in that right spot? And In a perfect world, I'd like Hyman there and Galchenyuk in the top six the more I talk it out, but it means taking Hyman off of that top line. And just as I say these thoughts out loud, I start to realize, wait, do I have Simmons as my last man out? Do I have Kerfoot on my fourth line? Someone has to be the odd man out here. So for fun, I'm going to put Galchenyuk in the top six and Hyman on the third line, even though I know that's not the way it's going to play out. It's just personally what I would like to see. So where is Galchenyuk going to go? Because you had Felino and Hyman in the top six. I'll go Galchenyuk with Matthews Marner. I think he can play with either set. Okay. And at late in the game, you're going to have Hyman on that line anyways. It's more to give the third line a bit more of a, some offensive punch because if you go Mikheyev, Engvall, Riley Nash, you're never going to score, but it's also a, a disruptive line defensively. Who, who are your 12? I'm curious to hear what you've got. Hold on. So what would your fourth line be? Just so to make sure I have this right. We've got Thornton, Kerfoot, Spets as of right now. Okay. You talked me into keeping Kerfoot in the lineup, which isn't something I wanted to do. So good on you. I don't like Kerfoot either, but I would still have him in the lineup. So then your line three would be Mikheyev, Nash, Hyman. Uh, yeah, because to me, that's how you optimize your results is getting Hyman on that third line and having three lines that can just hammer you hard at five on five. If you have Hyman in the top six, I don't want Kerfoot in that spot. Do I want Wayne Simmons in that spot? I don't think so. They're tough questions. They're tough questions. I'm realizing how hard this is. I'm, I'm realizing how, how much internal debate I'm having with myself. I'll tell I'll tell you how I would, what my approach would be here. So, um, the first way that you were going before you started making changes, as you started talking yourself through it. Yeah, I, I talked myself out of my own lineup. Yeah, it was brutal. Here, here would be mine, and I don't know if this is well. There is no right or wrong, but this is how I would approach it to start a game in the first period. I would have Felino with Matthews and Marner. Interesting. I I did not mind Felino there. I certainly did not think that he was a hindrance to anything that they were doing. I do like him as a four checker on that line. I do like him as a guy to get in there and get dirty. And I know Hyman does the same thing, but we've talked about how much more impactful Hyman can be uh, in terms of driving a line. So I like what Felino does. It's a lesser version of what Hyman does, but he's a lefty. He's smart. He's a crafty vet. He understands how to play defense. I think he's a good support guy to, you know, encourage Matthews and Marner and um, to push up ice as he covers for them defensively. So I think he kind of does a good job of rounding out that line. I would have Galchenyuk in first and foremost. uh, And this will just sound absolutely dumb as bricks to some people. And I totally, totally get it. uh, If you're one of these people that thinks this is dumb, but I, to my core, I just, I think Galchenyuk's a fiery guy. And I think putting him in game one against the Habs in a playoff series, I think you're getting a moment from him. I think you're getting a moment from him at some point in a, in a series against the Habs. I'm wondering if it comes more in a game two, game three, or all of a sudden he's in for game four out of nowhere. On a back-to-back, maybe he gets in. I just, I, we've only really seen a few games of bad Galchenyuk. That one game against the Jets in particular, he was god-awful. But... Good Galchenyuk, I quite like. It's hard for me to imagine we don't get good Galchenyuk game one in the playoffs against the Habs. So I would have him alongside Tavares and Nylander, a line that we've seen 
that has been good. That would be my offensive line. That would be you guys, if they ice the puck, one leg over the boards. Offensive zone faceoff, one leg over the boards. Mikheyev went offside, one leg over the boards. <laughs> any, any of these scenarios. You see a faceoff that's on the offensive side of center, one leg over the boards. You guys are going on. I trust those guys to create offense and create scoring chances. I would then, and I'm the only one who rides or dies with this guy, and I can see it in the comments all the time, but that's okay. I would just go back to the Mikheyev Engvall Hyman line. I know people don't like Engvall. Hey, you're getting Engvall back in the lineup. I like his speed. I like his size. I like his ability to take up space and get in on the cycle. I think he works really well on that line. They've been legitimately good when together. They were north of 60% expected goals. They were close to 65%. They were nuts together. Why mess with a good thing? When I have good things in my life, I just keep riding them until they're no longer good. They just haven't hit a point. Counter argument. Is Riley Nash better or worse than Pierre Engvall? For that line, I think he's worse because he doesn't bring the speed that Pierre Engvall does. A bit of puck transitioning? Yeah. I think that there's a little... I think... I think if you just want that line to not get scored on, I think Nash is better. But I think if you want that line, what I think you want from that line in the playoffs is essentially they're going to get the puck in deep and they're going to go to work on the forecheck in the cycle. And I think Engvall can do that. And I don't think Nash is particularly strong at that. But I think Nash is very detailed and very good defensively. I actually really like Riley Nash. Yeah, you're not getting an odd man rush off against Riley Nash. And that's the big, the, the idea of him playing high in the offensive zone and not letting his man get behind him. And he just, the shifts that he's going to be on the ice are going to suck to watch as a fan. Riley Nash is not a player anyone enjoys watching play, but that's why coaches love him. Yeah, and that's fine. Like I said, in a series against Edmonton, I would be much, I would lean much more towards Riley Nash because I would just say, just go up to go take a shift against Dreisaitl and don't get scored on. And he would say, okay. And that would be that. And this is where, it, weirdly, against Edmonton, I could see having a strictly defense-only line make a bit of sense because there are specific matchups you think of. But against a Montreal, uh, there's not one line that you think of and go, that's the line we need to shut down offensively. Maybe a Cole Caulfield line. Maybe that's the one no. where you go, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put Riley Nash on you defensively. Caulfield has not been good at 5-on-5. Five five. I think even the Habs fans paying attention know that. I'm not concerned about him and... If he if he does something that changes my mind in the playoff series, that's he's totally capable. I'm just saying to this point he hasn't shown it, so I don't I don't think you give him any extra second thought other than to tell people that he has a good shot. So the thing that Caulfield provides value on the power play, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So we'll transition to the power play shortly, but let's let you finish up your lines here. So my fourth line would would actually be the same that you said to start. I I would just start with Jumbo just to see what happens. Uh, and then if he just makes it blatantly clear that he can't play, I would have a very, very quick trigger finger on him. But he's been great lately, his last few games. He's been good. He's definitely been good. I would then have Kerfoot as the center, and I would have Spezza. So one thing I would note is, to me, if games, if the game is tight in the final 10, if it's a one-goal game, if it's a tie game, I'm probably not playing that fourth line pretty much at all but i would i would actively move kerfoot depending on how he was playing i would move kerfoot up with Tavares and nylander 
Interesting. And I, I wonder why they don't do that more often, because he's been effective in that role. Another interesting thing they do with Kerfoot is he plays late in games where they're holding on to a lead, even in six-on-five yeah. situations. He'll be yeah. out there. When they have a Matthews out there, you'll see, oh, Matthews out there, one of their best players. Kerfoot? What? Without Hyman there, they've been they've been rocking Kerfoot, Matthews, Marner. I think it's a terrible idea, but that's what they're going with. So, like... Honestly, it, they would legitimately be better if they went with Tavares, Matthews, and Marner. Straight up. I understand I understand what they're trying to do, though, because Kerfoot's one of their best penalty killers, and he's someone that they trust defensively. Mikheyev would be better. They're just trying to make him feel important. That's honestly all I think it is. Just a pat on the ass, you know. You, you matter here. You, you have value. It's one of those. You have, you have Wayne Simmons not in the lineup, and when I'm trying to construct my lineup, I end up not having him in the lineup. Is that something we need to consider and look at ourselves and go, he's going to be in the lineup. We need to accept this. I think he's going to end up being in the lineup, and that's totally okay. I'm not opposed to it. Uh, I'm just looking, if you're just, you know, like I said, if you're putting a gun to my head and you're saying, who are the 12 best forwards and how would you arrange them in a, a series against the Montreal Canadiens? I just wouldn't put him, I just wouldn't put him in game one. I would just say, I think that he struggles at five on five. I think he struggles getting around out there, but I think that he he could be a guy where, you know, God forbid you lose game one, you insert him into the lineup game two. He provides that element, that playoff toughness, that tenacity. You, you say it mockingly, but if he would come in on game two and he would be a monster, I, I would put any money on it. I think he would just come in and be an absolute disruptor. And I think that that's kind of a a little, you know, ace in the hole kind of move for you. You go, okay, I have this guy. And if I need to get to this, if things get a little silly, whatever the case is, I'm going to pull Simmons in and, you know, I'm going to make some lives difficult. And I kind of like having that. And he made a big impact on the power play early in the season. He was leading the league in deflections, chances from in tight on the power play, rebound chances, all the things that you would care about as a net front presence. Early in the year, he was leading the league in those categories. That, that's a good transition. Let's talk about the Leafs' power play because it hasn't been as good as you would want it to be throughout the season. But what's interesting is that I looked at it over the last two months. I set an arbitrary date. I was like, okay, from March 1st onwards, let's look at your numbers because it feels like we've been complaining about the Leafs' power play since around then. They're top 10 in shots for... They're top three in expected goals for, and they are not good in, ex in, in actual goals for. The goals are not going in. So I went individually and looked at, okay, which players are not are failing to score in these instances? Austin Matthews is right around where you'd expect him to be. He, he probably will score a bit more because he's someone whose shot is so strong that he'll outperform his expected goals. But He's Austin Matthews. Yeah. Tavares and Nylander underperforming a little bit lately. We should expect them to score a little bit more. Uh, the second unit as, an, as a whole just basically hasn't scored. Rasmus Sandin, when he's on the ice, the, the Leafs are shooting 0% on the power play over the last two months. Uh, with Wayne Simmons on the ice, they're shooting 0% on the power play over the last two months. It's not going to last. They are going to score eventually if you generate chances. Mitch Marner has scored zero goals on the power play, not just in the last two months, the entire season. season. Yeah. So shooting percentage with Taylor Hall, the reason I always brought up shooting percentage is because you're not going to keep shooting at a low shooting percentage forever. He was shooting 2% in Buffalo. He got traded to Boston. And now he's shooting some absurd percentage. That's way higher than his career average. 
that's going to drop down. And this is the inner nerd of me who just says, regress to the mean. Don't worry about these crazy swings and shooting percentage and save percentage. Worry about the shots. Worry about the chances. The puck lock will even out. Mitch Marner's been generating chances in the power play this year, but hasn't been scoring. In a playoff series against a team who is going to know that, and they're going to back off on Mitch Marner and dare him to shoot. We've seen the Boston Bruins do this in the past where, remember when they had the Kadri JVR Marner unit? They, they basically put Chara one-on-one in front of yep. JVR in front of the net and then had three players make a little triangle in front and said, okay, you can't pass through us. You're going to have to shoot. And then Riley and Marner were shooting from distance and they weren't able to create many dangerous chances. This is my one worry with the Leafs power play is that if you try to run it through Marner, are they just going to back off on him and there's not going to be enough space to create those kind of passing lanes you're looking for? Yeah, so a few things there. Uh, first off, for my money at that time, JVR was the best net fund front presence in the league the Bruins were bang on to give him the respect that he absolutely deserved at that time he's still one of the best net front guys in the league and they force fed him down low the Leafs don't get pucks going down low as much anymore they've been doing it more let's say over the last couple weeks than they had been during that that lull where they were not moving the puck at all but it's still not a play that they tend to just force where they go this is our bread and butter we're gonna dare you to stop this so this is my this is one of my biggest concerns and someone asked will the power play be their demise and honestly if they lose i think it'll be top three reasons if not top one i think it's really hard if you're gonna say our power play is just gonna throw up you know bagels and we're going to have to outscore them at five on five plus whatever they do on the power play. That's a really tough recipe and you don't need to have a great power play to win the cup. I think I looked at the last um, 20 teams to go to the Stanley cup final and their power play average was around 19, 20%. So it wasn't anything crazy. And there were a few ones that were lower, but generally speaking, it's a respectable power play because you do need some goals on it. It does need to happen. So to your point about Marner, I think what happens is, I know we've talked about this a little bit uh, offline, is if the power play is running through him, teams can, if the power play is running through him, teams can just back up, right? And then he has no options and then nothing happens. The passing lanes go away and he's basically forced to shoot it. And if the goalie knows he's going to shoot it, Mitch Marner doesn't have the, the best wrist shot in the world. What's weird is that he's scoring a lot of goals at five on five this year with a really high shooting percentage. Yet on the power play, he scored no goals with a 0% shooting percentage. So something has to give at some point. Remember everyone said that his shot was improved early on, and I just said, no, I, I don't see it. And and he's shooting more. And I, I it's funny, I'll make these eye test notes during a game where I go, oh, I think Mitch Marner's shooting more. Then I'll go and I'll check the numbers, and it's objectively untrue. This is why I like using numbers, because sometimes my eyes completely lie to me. The big reason that I don't see it with his shot getting better is because I just don't see him straight up ripping pucks by goalies guys that are actually good shooters just straight up rip the puck by goalies and he doesn't he's all about deception right he's all about deception and shiftiness and if he can fake it one way and put it the other if he can you know look a guy off or look one way and put the puck the other way all that stuff, which is great, and he's a super productive player. I don't want it. Backdoor pass to Nylander on the power play when everyone in the world thinks he's shooting. That's what makes Mitch Marner special. He's yeah. great, but a guy with an actual good shot that's an actual goal scorer will just look at the goalie and beat them clean, right? Uh, you know, That's what Austin Matthews does, and this is the point that you brought up to me is that when the Leafs run their power play through Matthews, they're way more successful because teams overcommit to him, teams panic, 
I think it's Steph Curry in the NBA when he has the ball on the perimeter and the entire defense just runs towards him because he's the guy you're most afraid of. And then he passes it off to a wide open teammate. And now the defense is in a vulnerable position. And that's when Marner hits you with the backdoor pass. Marner is amazing at making that split second decision to the right guy touch pass like just quick one touch I, I know where I'm going with it the second I get it yeah if you're gonna get him the puck and there's an opportunity to make a play he's gonna make the right pass you almost never see him sometimes you see him the only time you see him not making the right play is when he should actually shoot and he decides not to but it'll never be that he's missed the pass to the guy it's more when you're just like okay here's the puck on the half wall go run the power play and he sits there and goes I have nobody open I have nowhere to go with this puck I have nothing to do and then he'll pass it back to the point. Just, okay, reset because it's not happening. And the guy that I'm passing it back to the point is not even a right-handed shot. So it's not even a guy that can one-time the puck. It's not as if up top you're sitting there. Okay, but if it were Tyson Berry and he let one go from the blue line, is that a shot you're feeling good about? No, of course not. It would have to be, you know, really good Brent Burns or prime Eric Carlson or, you know, a player of that nature. Shea Weber? Yeah, right? Shea Weber's... Uh, you know, I think he's top five all time in power play goals, something ridiculous uh, among D-man. And I think he's first by a long shot in goals above expectation in terms of him outperforming his shot locations. Yeah. So Rasmus Sandin is a lefty. I'm sorry. It's not it. Morgan Riley is a lefty. It's not it. Even if those guys were right-handed, they wouldn't be it. But as left-handed shots, it's just, it's too easy to game plan. And so, yes, I think the power play is a legitimate problem. Uh, I would like to think that they have some tricks up their sleeves and maybe they didn't fully reveal them because they were playing the Habs so much and they maybe went, what's the point of tipping our hand? I would like to think that. I'm going to somewhat give them the benefit of the doubt. What What is in your back pocket if you're Manny Malhotra slash Sheldon Keefe right now and you have a trick or two that you're going to pull out in game one or game two of the playoffs on the power play when you really need a goal? What's this look? What are you doing differently? I think back pocket is probably two things one flipping marner and matthews so that matthews is just straight up on the one-timer side and you just go we're gonna put it in his wheelhouse that'll give you a quicker puck movement i think and then if you have marner and marner on the left wall and nylander to the left of the net that gives you options for them to switch and then get some quick give and goes yeah then he can pass it down low and that pass down low that pass down low to marner or, or nylander whoever's on the goal line and then a quick pass out front to davares that's a bang-bang play that beats defenses really well. A lot of successful power play units run that play. Yeah, Vancouver's actually really good at it when they're fully healthy. Vegas is awesome at it. Colorado's really good at it. So I think that's one potential play in their back pocket. And then I think the other one would be, and I don't, I've really seen no indication that the Leafs are willing to do this, though I think they should be. I've been on this train for the end of time, is, is flipping Nylander and Marner. And saying we're going to put another shooter up here and we're just going to, you know, rip pucks. I think the worst thing that I saw was that full two minute five on three. Five on three is different from five on four in terms of how you tactically attack it. Yeah, 100%. I just, what what was really disheartening for me is that they had no clue what they were doing. They didn't even know what they were trying to do, which was actively upsetting to me watching it. So if you watch a good five on three... What a good five on three wants to do is they want to shrink the whole the whole power play. They want, you know, your top guy should be at the top of the circles and everyone should be below it, right? So they're actually actively shrinking the zone. For some reason, the Leafs were so spaced out on it 
it was like they did not they did not even realize that they were on a five on three with the way that they looked. Rasmus Sandin could touch the blue line. Dude, what are you doing up at the blue line on a five on three? That is not what you do. If you watch a good five on three, and I've watched a ton of the Colorado ones, Kale McCarr is just standing at the top of the circle. He's like perfect. They only have three guys. Now the Leafs the Leafs don't really have a Kale McCarr though. But they have Matthews and they have Nylander. I mean, these guys have bombs. Right, And you're watching Matthews is taking the same route and getting the puck in the same spots that he would on a 5-on-4 on a 5-on-3 while Rasmus Sandin is chilling at the top of the blue line. I'm going, these guys just, there's no plan. There's no, there's no awareness. And I know that they were up big, but they put out the, the top power play unit because they needed to work on it. And they weren't even doing the right things. Do you remember when Keith didn't challenge the goal and the, the big joke on Twitter was, well, Keith knows that it was a goal, but he wants to give his power play some extra practice time, so he didn't bother <laughs> challenging it. Yeah, I was that one was a, a, a questionable one for me. And I think that this kind of gets into um, a bigger conversation because we did have some people ask us, okay, do, do you think Keith has done enough, generally speaking, to prepare them for the playoffs? And I generally want to say yes. I think he's been fairly experimental here the past few weeks, which I've quite enjoyed. So kudos to him. Definitely want to recognize that. I think if if one of the two big centers goes down, I don't think that he's prepared them for that. Prepared Nylander for some shifts at center? Like, you could argue that no team could survive that, and that would be a fair argument. I could take that. I wonder if this is PTSD from last year, from the game five of just yeah. putting it on him last minute, and now he's afraid to go back to it ever again. So to me, the only other guy they've really put there is Alex Kerfoot, and you could probably get away with that against the Habs, and maybe even the Oilers if Riley Nash comes in and does a good job as a pure black hole shutdown guy. But let's say you play Boston. And- Do you say Riley Nash in the top six? No, no, I'm saying, I'm saying you could get away with with Kerfoot and Nylander as a soft scoring line too, with Riley Nash complimenting them as a black hole shutdown third line. Oh, okay. In my head, I was picturing you moving Nash up into the... Uh. No, no, absolutely not. Um, But to me, so let's say you play Boston round three, and if you have Kerfoot centering that second line against the Krejci-Taylor Hall line, it's not good enough. I think they're going to get lit up. If you lose Matthews or Tavares, your odds of winning a cup are very low anyways. This is like when Jake Muzzin went down with an injury. You, you kind of need your top three or four players to be healthy if you're going to win a cup. There are going to be injuries regardless, but to your main core guys, if, if one of them gets hurt, that's trouble. I think there's a world where, where not that I'm not going to say that they win a cup, but I think there's a world where they play the top teams and you have a second line with Nylander feeling good at center. And you could even, depending on how he's really looking, like you could just full out insulate him and say, I'm going to put Felino on the left and Hyman on the right. And that's the thing with Felino is that he can play center in terms of yeah. just the raw positioning of it. Positions are not outdated because it does matter. You do need yeah. to have someone who's defensively responsible. But if you have a Nylander at center, you can play him with an extremely defensively responsible player. We've seen them do it with Hyman in the past. And then Hyman's the low forward in the defensive zone supporting the play. It, you can have elements of that. Felino, you joked in his first couple games as a Leaf, even though he was playing the wing, he was playing center yeah, in terms of his positioning on the ice. He wasn't on the boards. He wasn't up in the play on the forecheck. He was the high forward in the offensive zone, staying above the other team's center. Just 
I, I think in Columbus, he's so used to those responsibilities. That's kind of what he was doing early on. I, I think he's acclimatized a bit better to his role now, but it's been tough to see because he hasn't played lately. Can we finish up on a topic here? It looks like you've got one more thing you want to say. Yes, a, f- a few more, because now we're probably going to go, and it's we're shifting away from the power play, and I'm cognizant of our time. Um, but I think that this is a really noteworthy topic that a lot of people asked us about, was was coaching. And and someone made a good point. I got an email from Ben, said, I thought Keith was outcoached in the last two series. I would agree with that. But I didn't necessarily think he did a poor job coaching. Which I would also agree. I don't think that he actively sewered them, but I don't think he did a great job. I think game five is a big knock against him, unfortunately. I don't think he was like the master puppeteer, you know, pulling the right strings. I think he was just kind of, you know, at times he almost looked shell-shocked and whatever happened, happened. Um, There was very few times where I was going, wow, look at Keith making that adjustment, making that lineup, you know, configuration change or whatever the case is that actively paid off tactical adjustment yeah whatever it is they're just i just wasn't seeing it i don't think anybody was so when someone you know and the rest of this question asked what's your biggest concern coaching decisions wise heading into the playoffs and mine is and i think that this so we talked about the power play so i think the power play is a big thing in and of itself he has to find a way for it to at least be respectable because if it's throwing if it's just an offer kind of thing they're not going to be able to survive that. It needs to be respectable. And it's not even that. You want to see quick puck movement. You want to see them gaining the zone. If they're hitting a bunch of posts and they end the series with only one power play goal, but the process was really good and you're going into the next series with confidence, then that's that to me, I don't, I don't care too much about the end result. I care more about are you doing the things that are going to lead to goals. The biggest frustration over the last couple months is that the entries haven't been great and that the puck movement in the offensive zone has looked predictable. You want to see those things cleaned up. So I have three other concerns. One is that he's going to pull the right decisions with goaltending. I think goaltending is going to be really tricky, and it'll be fine if obviously you get good goaltending, but if things go south, if you don't get a good game, I don't know. Is it going to be an itchy trigger finger and you're going to switch from Campbell to Freddie? How bad does Campbell need to play in, let's say, the first two games for Anderson to get a start? Because I think Anderson's going to start either game three or game four because that's probably going to be the back-to-back situation. But how poorly would Campbell need to play in game one for Anderson to be the game two starter? I think he'd have to blow the game completely. But I think yeah. I think in saying that, I, um, I almost see no scenario unless he gets hurt where he, if he starts game one. And I think he's going to start game one. So people asked us that too. I think I think you have to owe it to Campbell. He's been too good. People keep bringing up his record, which, by the way, I'm not a big fan of using that for goalies. It's a team stat, but yeah, but he's like he's won 17 of 22 or something like that. I care more about the actual like save percentage and yeah, him yeah. stopping the pucks. He has been good, and Frederick Anderson's coming off of an injury. He's playing AHL games and letting in bad goals. He might come in to one of their next few games here and look really good, and then. We're thinking, okay, maybe Anderson's starting to get his confidence back, and he's actually more rested now than he's ever been heading into a playoff series. So if you're a Frederick Anderson truther, there are some some points you could bring up, but it's Campbell's net to lose at this point. Can I bring up one of my concerns with Sheldon Keefe's uh, coaching sure. decisions over the next couple weeks? Sure. I'm worried that Riley Nash plays too many minutes in a sport where the objective is to outscore the other team. And late in the third period, we were holding a one-goal lead, totally understand the Riley Nash uh, value and why you'd want him out there. But in a tie game in the second period, when he's getting regular shifts, 
or when you're trailing and he gets a couple shifts, those are going to hurt your chances of scoring a goal when you desperately need to score a goal. So it's a concern to me, even though I definitely see the value he provides defensively. I think there's an element offense that really scares me. And you know, what's funny. Toronto d didn't beat Columbus last year because they couldn't score. And what if that's another problem this year where their third line is just a black hole offensively? Yeah, I could see that being a concern. He's generally not been that kind of coach. So, you know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt there. I do think he's kind of been the coach where I don't know if he's uh, ready to make the tough decisions on vets. Right. Ooh, whether it's a Simmons or you yeah. can bring up Thornton. I think Thornton's been playing well, but let's, let's use he has Simmons been playing as an well. example. Let's say an injured Bogosian comes back and can't really play. And it should be Sandine Dermott, but Bogosian's in there because it's Bogosian. It's another thing where it's tough. You want to have all the elements. You want to be a well-balanced team. This is the best defensive Leafs team we've seen in the decade. It's the quote-unquote toughest Leafs team we've seen in a while. Then again, they did have Colt Moore and Fraser McLaren. They were pretty tough, even though they sucked at hockey. But <laughs> I can understand the balance that you're trying to, to achieve if you're Sheldon Keefe right now. You're trying to walk the tightrope between having this skilled team who can create offensively but also being a responsible team that's tough to play against. Where do you draw the line? And I think this is where you're saying, does he lean too far in the veteran direction and it, it results in them not having the 12 best skaters out there? Whereas if Mike Babcock were coaching this team, we'd be screaming for him to throw the more skilled player out there and so mad that he has the aging veteran there for the defensive zone draws. So that, that's one of the other funny things here whenever we're, we're criticizing Keith for things that we, we, we criticize Bab Babcock yeah. for. If Babcock were making some of these decisions, I know a lot of me and my fellow nerds would be losing our shit. But because it's Sheldon Keefe and Kyle Dubas who are making some of these decisions, we're all on board for the Wayne Simmons trade. Yeah, no, you guys are all full of shit, eh? It's just whether it plays to your agenda or not. <laughs> it's all identity politics. Taylor Hall scores a goal. Oh, let me tweet real quick. I've I've never seen a group that says points don't matter quickly turn to points when they actually help their argument i'm not saying this about you specifically because i actually not about you at all this is any argument any argument on the internet you have this main philosophy that you really believe in but when all of a sudden the opposite of that helps you prove a point you are more than willing to dig into that so that's just human nature yeah guys will be like points aren't the be all and end all and then it'll be taylor hall has 14 points in 16 games i told you i was right I'm like well which one is it either these things don't matter that much or or they do matter just when it matters to you. Because his PDO is like, what, 109? Yeah, no, that's not going to last. But it's the fact that they're dominating play at 5-on-5. Five five, and he's getting a lot of entries and chances off the rush and passes off the rush. I think his offensive zone faceoff percentage is some it's north of 80. It's outrageous. His biggest value, though, is his transitioning ability. So, I mean, he doesn't even need to be someone that you throw in the offensive zone. He might be better in a defensive zone start where he has 200 feet of runway to skate up the ice. Probably, but... They're, they're so, they have such a good core to support him with. It's, that's really a perfect scenario for him. Cause they're really just saying, go to the second line and score and you don't have to do anything else. Right. He couldn't have done that in Toronto. He couldn't have made passes to Tavares and Nylander off the rush. Maybe. I don't think that's what the Leafs were looking for though. I know it's not. I, like, they clearly weren't interested in him. I just... Is Nylander not capable of making those rushes? Yeah. I think you're allowed to have more than one player who's good with the puck on their stick. 
Of course, but so is T- Tavares is good with the puck on his stick. I think you can only have so much of one thing before you're finally like, okay, we need other things. See, those are the those are the the Olympic arguments that result in you having Justin Albuquerque on your team instead of Phil Kessel, or having uh, what's his face uh, Chris Draper on your team instead of Sidney Crosby in '06. Yeah, no, I wouldn't do that kind of thing. I think that's outrageous. I mean, Phil's actually amazing. Uh, I'm not even going to touch that topic against Abdulkader, but I I could still see the logic there for the Leafs. Um, but the one other thing I want to bring up about Keith before we kind of shift off to coaching, and this is really my biggest concern, especially going back to your question, Ben, is it for me, I think any time that they've had notable injuries, and you will have notable injuries in a playoff run, I've really questioned his lineup adjustments. Uh, so I've mentioned Kerfoot a number of times moving up to second line center. I mean, even, you know, just as a quick aside, you don't think Jason Spezza could play 2C for one game? Give me a break. He's tough, though, because he's he's bad defensively. I think we have to admit that he needs to be sheltered, and you play him in your top six. with You have Spezza and Nylander on the same line? I can understand the concerns. Give him the Taylor Hall treatment. 80% ozone starts. I'm sure they'll be okay for a game. So... Uh, but you know, I think across the board, we've seen some, just a few strange lineup configurations at times when guys have been in and out of the lineup or an ability. I mean, I think they would have beat Columbus last year if Jake Muzzin didn't get hurt. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think most reasonable people would think that, and I love Jake Muzzin. I think they would have beat Columbus if they shot more than 2% at 5-on-5. Five five. That too, but I think the Jake Muzzin injury really hurt them. And I love Jake Muzzin probably more than most as I've gone on about him on this podcast a number of times. Yeah, we almost don't need to talk about the Jake Muzzins and the TJ Brodies. Hey, yeah. this guy's good at defense. But but my point there is really, I just I don't think the Jake Muzzin injury should have been enough for them to lose to Columbus. And I don't think that he did a really good job of adjusting. I think at times... What should he have done, though? Because I think the only move was to move Dermott up the lineup, have him play with Hall where he's comfortable, keep the Riley pairing the way it was. You have Tyson Berry move up the lineup? It wasn't necessarily about what he did with the defense, right? And that and that's kind of what grabs me sometimes. Even even with the goaltending, they would have, uh, and Babs did this too, it'd be Hutchinson would go in, or they weren't getting good games from Freddie. And instead of saying, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna play really tight defensively, we're gonna we're gonna lower the scoring chances across the board, it would be it would be the same old shit. It'd be, you know, Freddie's playing terrible, but let's go on the road when, you know, there were actual fans in the arena, and then let's just play this running gun wide open hockey. I'm sitting there going, You're on the road, your goalie hasn't saved a beach ball in weeks. And you guys aren't changing anything stylistically to at least somewhat help make his life a little bit easier. Counterpoint, that's exactly what they've done this year. And they have the best defensive results they've ever had. Yeah, which is great. Uh, But in a tight series where, you know, the decisions come quick, you don't have an offseason to think about these things. He's got to make them in real time. I just, I haven't seen that kind of, you know, adjustments from him. Often, to be honest... And again, we go back to the Babcock kind of thing of what he would get or not get roasted for. There's been a ton of times, especially that stretch where they weren't playing very well, where they didn't shake the lines up at all, right? And my thing is, you're going to sit there because we're going to look at it for sure. You know, we'll, you know, we'll be here in a week and a half and it'll be, okay, if they're losing the series and I've seen the same lines rolled out for three straight games, I'm going to be beside myself. 
Yeah, and it'll be, depending on what's happening, if they're not scoring enough and Riley Nash is still getting 13 or 14 minutes a night. Uh, I, I do wonder about the minutes allocation. Tavares Nylander, we were concerned earlier in the year that they weren't going to get enough minutes. I do wonder if with Hyman and Felino both in the top six, that that's no longer an issue because he's going to trust those lines so much defensively. Yeah, and to me, um, you know, someone asks, what are the ramifications for losing? I just, I can't in good conscience, I know I've said this already before, I just can't in good conscience actually look at what Kyle Dubas did and say he did it. Like, I can't. I know you might because Taylor Hall, but you know, by and large, I just can't look at this lineup and say that it's the lineup's fault for not coming out of this division. If they don't come out of this division, the players did something wrong and or the coaching staff did something wrong. So I'm not looking at the management level. I'm probably looking and saying the power play and the penalty kill need a new direction. And you might have to look at, you know, someone outside the big three. I do wonder if there are coaching changes next year. Not at Sheldon Keith, but assistant coaches running the special teams. I'd be very I, curious to see what happens there. I, I mean, they're the Toronto Maple Leafs. They have the biggest budget of all time. They've walked Manny Mahotra into that position with very little credentials, to be honest. And the power play fell off a cliff this year. If they're bad in the playoffs, I mean, I find that quite upsetting. And you know that we were talking to Bruce Boudreau and they have Paul McClain up top, a guy who's had actual real success running power plays for literal years in this league. And I'm just kind of watching the whole thing confused, to say the least. Ever since Jim Hiller left, hasn't quite been the same. You look at yeah. the five on five metrics, or not, sorry, not five on five, the five on four metrics under Jim Hiller. I want to say they had the highest expected goal rate, the Marner unit, of any power play unit over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. I guess since 2007 when we started recording this stuff. And then ever since Hiller left, those numbers have not been as stellar. And this year they're a bit underwhelming. So a lot of power play comes down to tactics, comes down to, comes down to coaching. Whether or not the pucks go in, that you need talent for that. But in order to generate the chances, you'd be surprised how much of that it comes down to tactics. Uh, I know we're tight on timing, so I want to see if you have anything else. I do have a few very quick things, but... Uh, for last things here, just again to acknowledge that Taylor Hall is back to scoring goals and that for everyone who is saying that this guy was a cancer and not worth a first-round pick, I just want to dance on the grave of everyone who said that this guy was a terrible hockey player. He's playing well. He's putting the puck in the net. Just because I think he's a good player doesn't mean I think Nick Foligno's a bad player, but... I'm very happy for Taylor Hall and all the truthers out there who understand shooting percentage regression. Thank you, fellow nerds. We meet every Friday at uh, 6 o'clock in my basement to play Dungeons & Dragons. Thank you very much. I like Taylor Hall. I'm happy for his success. I'm very curious if it continues in the playoffs when rush offense goes down the drain. Uh, so I'm curious to see if that translates. But good for him. And he's he scored a few nice goals on three on three or to make it four or five nothing that I've seen. So like I said, we'll see what kind of carries over into the playoffs. Yeah, tight checking, five on five, you're thinking he's not gonna be as effective as we've seen in these three on three highlights. Yeah. And that's why with Montreal and how bad they were at three on three, none of that really matters in the playoffs. So I try not to worry too much about it. So we'll see on him. I'm kinda interested. We never talked about the defense. The top four is what it is, we all know. Who's your third pairing? Everybody's healthy. Everybody's healthy. I like Sandine's upside over Dermot. Are we assuming Bogosian's healthy? Yes. Then realistically, I'm understanding that Bogosian's going to be there. Although I like the idea of having more talent on the ice. I'm always of the opinion that you just throw your most talented players on the ice and get it to make it happen. But 
you're going to bring up the fact that Bogosian's the better defensive player and that if you want a stable third pair that you trust, he's the guy that you need there. Mainly just that I think he's rock solid. I think you know what you're getting from him night in, night out. I, there's something to be said for that on the third pair, just kind of settle things down and and you know be a good player in the league. But you're right, I would have Sandine as well. That I think this is why we didn't talk about it too much because I think we would be in general agreement on it. I just Sandine's the only guy of the other options that will contribute to special teams. Um, and I think that matters. I think it's hard if you're a guy that's just going to play five on five. We've talked about that with Dermot, including last week. So if you're just going to play five on five, when a guy inevitably comes in like Sandine, that's going to also chip in on the power play, potentially, I should say, because he hasn't really actually done much on the power play. Um, that's how you get bumped out of the lineup. And then last question for you. I loved this question. Which Leaf has the most riding on the playoffs? Okay, this is an interesting question because this is more narrative-based, I guess, as opposed to you know, the quote-unquote analytics that I like to do. Yeah. And before the show started, I, I, the first name that came to mind for me was Matthews, just because even though he's obviously an elite player and he's obviously having his best season as a professional hockey player. one of the best Leaf seasons yet of all to time. Get out, he's yet to get out of the first round. Yeah. And I'm a big NBA fan. When players don't make it out of the first round, Russell Westbrook lately, we tend to make fun of them because we say, yeah, whatever, your regular season stats are great, but when teams are actually able to game plan against you in the playoffs, you can't get it done. Hockey's a more random sport than basketball and a more team-oriented sport where you need other players to succeed to actually win, whereas in basketball, if you're the best player, you can really dictate the outcome of the game. I do think Austin Matthews is going to need to get out of the first round here for people to truly consider him one of the top talents in the league even though, for my money, I'd vote for him number two in the heart ballot this year. But I think narrative-wise, he's the franchise. He's your best player. He needs to be the one to single-handedly drag them out of the first round. And he's scored in the past. I'm not saying he's a bad player. I'm not saying he's a choker. I'm saying these are the things that will be said if they lose in the first round. So I, I agree that Matthews will take criticism, uh, but I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. So uh, I didn't have him near the top of my list. My first, my first choice is Morgan Riley, and that's because he might, he's most likely going to lead their team in time on ice per game. I mean, he has all season, right? He has been here for every first round playoff loss. He has a year left on his contract. At some point, it, you know, if he's playing the most and the team is going nowhere and he's not helping them, you know, get to where they need to be, people are going to be like, "What are we doing here?" Sandine's taken the PP1 duties and looked better doing it in the playoffs, let's say. And then the second one to that will be everyone's favorite lightning rod. It'll be Nylander. And I'm not saying this comes from anything me, but just the simple reality of the narrative is if they lose round one again, Marner and Matthews are going nowhere. And it'll probably be very difficult to get rid of Tavares. So Nylander will be the natural person that people pick on. Plus, people always love to say that the stuff that he does will not translate to the playoffs. Well, that's what you're saying about Taylor Hall. Yeah, to some degree. Well, I'm not saying that he's going to have a bad playoffs. I'm just saying I don't think he's going to be as lights out as he looks right now. You're saying he's a rush-oriented player and that those chances dissipate in the playoffs relative to cycle chances. Yes. The funny thing is, though, I actually thought Nylander was their best player in the Washington series. Yes, I agree. I love bringing that up when people say Nealander's not a playoff performer. I go, well, did you watch that Washington series? He was awesome. The final 20 games of that season to get into the playoffs and the subsequent playoffs, I thought he was their best player, and that was months. I think that might have been the best hockey he's ever played because then he went on to play internationally and won MVP at the uh, the IHFs for Sweden. Yeah, he was amazing. 
So I'm not saying it's personally income for me. I'm not saying I'm going to sit here and, and say they need to get rid of this guy two weeks from now if they lose in the first round. I'm just saying I think we're going to get a lot of that talk. All right. I got one more for you real quick. Nick Felino Paid a lot for this guy. And Taylor Hall is on another team that you might be facing in the conference final. And if he's at a point per game. Will that be Kyle Dubas, though, or Nick Felino? Ooh, that's actually a fair one. Because you can't fault Nick Felino for being a human being. Like, no, and for and for being Nick Felino, he's gonna play good defensively. He's Nick Felino. He, that's not gonna change. The frustration that I have is that he's not the better hockey player that you could have acquired. So maybe it is Kyle Dubas. I, I would say that one would then be Dubas, right? That would be yeah. egg on his face. It, he, he made a decision, and people are gonna be mad. They should be mad at him if this is a Nick Felino slander-free podcast. What if Frederick Anderson comes in and wins a couple games, then wins game seven and just completely rewrites the narrative on his time in Toronto and then walks out the door and gets a big paycheck from someone else? There's honestly, like, in my heart, and I and I was very quick. I was, from what I've seen of, of most of the writers, I was on the quicker side of saying, I don't think Freddie's good in the playoffs. Uh, and then that really kind of came to a head last year against Columbus. Uh, but honestly, there's not a single player in my entire whole heart that I am rooting for to have just a monster playoffs and shut everybody absolutely up than Frederick Anderson. Honestly, in my heart, there's not a single player I would get more joy out of than just watching Freddie just absolutely quiet the doubters. I would love it. That inevitable start he's going to get in the playoffs is probably going to be my favorite game of the first round just because it's going to be fascinating because if he has a lights out game or let's say he has a shutout or he stops 32 or 33 shots and they win 4-1 now you're thinking crap do we have to start him for the next game we just have to let this ball keep rolling and then he gets another win then he gets another win and now is he your starter in round two and it could be a really interesting narrative heading into the playoffs this is the playoffs man it's it's storylines it's matchups it's narratives i'm fired up jake gardner's been walked a few times this week it's pdo benders man it's playoff time it's playoffs playoffs <laughs> baby Alrighty. by the time we record next week will it actually be playoffs or will we all waiting for calgary and vancouver to finish their meaningless game don't even get me started on that i can't honestly i can't until next week folks thanks for hanging around with us for over an hour this has been the MLHL podcast. Oh, I can't even say it properly. The MLHS podcast with me and Anthony Petrielli. Looking forward to playoff hockey next week. Any final words here? Yeah, you're a playoff choker just right at the end there. Just totally choked it. Choked it. Wow. <laughs> I'm Taylor Hall. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.